Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. This week, we're going to begin looking at the actual text of Shakespeare's history play, Richard II, which is the first history play of the second tetralogy of history plays that Shakespeare wrote. Two tetralogies, two sets of four plays, recounting a continuous line of English history from 1399, which is the year of the death of Richard II, all the way up to somewhat before Shakespeare's own time, Shakespeare being born in 1564. And the royal line that is being considered here is a single dynasty stretching over that period of time, the Plantagenets, or in the original French pronunciation, Plantagenet, because this line goes all the way back to the Norman Conquest of 1066, in which William I of Normandy in France came across the English Channel, conquered the Anglo-Saxons, and for hundreds of years, a French dynasty ruled England, starting with William I, who thereby became Richard uh, William the Conqueror. And the characters we are concerned with in the play at hand are the descendants of William the Conqueror. We have come down to the Plantagenet King Edward III, who is in fact dead when the play opens. And what we are chiefly concerned with are his offspring, the fabled seven sons of Edward III. This will take it, Shakespeare, eight plays, as I say, to work out. This is called the second tetralogy because Shakespeare wrote it second, and it is it begins with Richard II, the tetralogy of his early maturity, However, it is the beginning of the actual historical chronology. The whole set of eight plays forms a continuous narrative that I sometimes refer to as Shakespeare's epic. And it begins chronologically here, even though he wrote the second set later. It concerns the uh, second set earlier. It concerns events that actually occur later the Henry VI place plus Richard III. Here we are at the beginning of the story. And the beginning of the story concerns the fabled seven sons, as they are referred to in the text, the seven sons of Edward III. However, to simplify matters, we can quickly narrow that down a little bit Two of the sons, both named William, died early and played no part in either history or Shakespeare's narration of it. That leaves five, of which several are also dead when this begins. The oldest son was Edward, known as the Black Prince, a war hero, a dashing figure who nevertheless died early. And according to the rule that was known as primogeniture, the rule of succession by which in England 
the throne passed, the crown passed from the oldest son to the oldest son. Edward III had a son, Edward the Black Prince, who should have become king, but he died. And therefore it goes to the oldest son of the oldest son, Richard II, who became king on Edward III's death, became king in 1377, and therefore had a reign of something like 22 years in actual history. The play makes it sound as if Richard has barely been on the throne perhaps a year or so and instantly caused people to hate him enough to foment a rebellion. That is really dramatic effect, but he had actually a long reign, especially for this period of time, before, yes, in the end, it did hit the fan, and we will watch Richard be deposed and then killed by the end of the play. However, he's on the throne now, according to primogeniture. The second son of the five we're concerned with, Lionel, is also dead, and that line descending from Lionel plays no further part in this play, in Richard II, but we keep it in mind because in the next play, Henry IV, Part One, it is descendants stemming from Lionel who will form a challenge to Henry IV, the person that we know right now as Harry Bolingbroke, who is the son of the third of the five sons of Edward III, the son of John of Gaunt, John of Gaunt's son, Harry Bolingbroke, or sometimes Bolingbroke, who will become Henry IV on the death of Richard II. There are two more, or there were, sons of Edward III, moving down the line from older to younger, Next, after John of Gaunt is Edmund, Duke of York, who is in the play and an important figure because his allegiance is crucial and therefore his change of allegiance from Richard to Bolingbroke is a turning point of the play. And finally, youngest was Thomas of Woodstock, Duke of Gloucester. But Thomas is no longer with us. He was murdered. Not, didn't just die, but it was known that he was murdered. And the question is, who did it? He was in the custody of a man that we meet in Act One, Scene One, Thomas Mowbray. And it is assumed that Mowbray murdered him or had him murdered by his henchmen. That will be the bone of contention as the play opens. And the play opens, Act One, Scene One, in Windsor in 1398, the year before Richard's death. Windsor is the seat, the residence of royalty built by William the Conqueror himself. And that matters because what we are seeing in Act One, Scene One is a symbolic ritualized scene in a place with symbolic resonance. Here in Windsor, we come upon a scene of ritual 
action. I mentioned when we studied Hamlet, the critical rule of thumb, or at least suggestion, that when you read a Shakespeare play, you should look very carefully at the beginning of the opening scene, maybe even the first few lines of the play, because a good deal of the time in Shakespeare, those lines function rather like the overture in a symphony containing themes that will be developed through the piece to come. It isn't invariable, but it is a good thing to look at to see. And in fact, we have already seen it. The famous instance, most famous of all, is the opening of Hamlet that begins with the cry of a nervous, paranoid sentry, who's there? The theme of the ambiguity of identity that runs through the whole play practically is the play in a manner of speaking. Here, we will take a look in this opening scene and we see in front of King Richard two people facing off against each other. Bolingbroke, on the one hand, son of John of Gaunt, who is also present, and Mowbray, the man who killed or had killed the son of Edward III, Thomas of Woodstock, facing off and accusing each other in front of Richard. However, the first line of the play is from Richard. Old John of Gaunt, time-honored Lancaster. The first thing the audience hears are those words. And that plants in the consciousness of the audience that name and the idea of time-honored. That will become, it may seem, rather random at the moment, but it's according to how things develop that they may take on significance. And the idea of old John of Gaunt, who represents the old world and the old dynasty, the time-honored way, it will turn out that that is of thematic significance. But Richard continues to say that you have brought here your son, Henry Hefford, thy bold son, to make an appeal against the Duke of Norfolk, Thomas Mowbray. And that is indeed the case. And Bolingbroke thereby speaks up, speaks at Mowbray in the presence of the king, and says to Mowbray, line 39, thou art a traitor and a miscreant. Okay. Mowbray utterly denies it, and what we get is a series of long, very formal speeches in very formal verse. We have come up against another critical rule of thumb, and that is that we should always look at the verbal texture of a Shakespeare play, specifically the ratio of prose to verse, how much of it is in poetry, how much of it is in more conversational prose. We have finished talking about Much Ado About Nothing, much if not most of which is in conversational prose. Here we are at the opposite extreme, and as a matter of fact, 
the play, Richard II, is entirely in verse, which is vanishingly rare for Shakespeare. There isn't a single line of prose in it. And that means something according to the purpose and the effect. When Shakespeare shifts into verse, it formalizes and adds a weight to it. And here we get a weighty scene entirely in ritualized verse in a ritualized ceremony. And we have to ask ourselves, why are we getting this? We are getting a scene of mutual accusation in front of the king. But to go back to the original suggestion of looking at the opening words in the opening scene, why is this a key to the play? And in fact, this whole scene, why is it here? Why did Shakespeare choose to dramatize this part of the action? Yes, this occurred in history, no doubt, but that doesn't mean that everything that occurred in history has to be dramatized. This is the same is true of a realistic novel. The writer chooses which things to dramatize and which merely to summarize or refer to. And why begin his play with this? This scene takes up a lot of time with very wordy speechifying leading towards a trial by combat that never even occurs because it will be aborted by Richard. What is the point of that? Why did Shakespeare do that? What happened to the idea that you should hook the audience with some sort of action or at least some sort of vital conflict from the very first moment? Why this at first ponderous seeming mutual accusation in solemn verse. And we operate, when there's a mystery in Shakespeare or any other work of literature, we operate on the theory that, well, let's assume that the author had some reason, and therefore, if we keep pursuing it, we might get a key to the deeper meanings and patterns of the work at hand. And the idea of a ritual action must be part of the point. The ritual action here is a mutual accusation, a mutual attempt at denouncing that leads to, therefore, the plan for a trial by combat. Trial by combat is a custom that comes out of the old world of the Middle Ages. And to us, when we pause to think about it, you've probably heard the term before, but when we pause to think about what's behind it, we may find it by modern notions utterly bizarre. Okay, two people accuse each other, or one accuses the other and the other says, I'm innocent. Okay, how are we going to decide? Instead of a trial by judge or by jury with evidence and argument in the modern legal way, there could be a trial by combat in the Middle Ages. Okay, you two fight it out, and God will decide the winner, and God will decide the winner based on whoever's cause is just, whoever is innocent, whoever is on the side of justice, 
God will make sure that that person wins. To which we say, what? Are you kidding? We don't believe in that kind of providence, but they did, or at least that was the ideology that they did. God would not allow the good cause to fail, the good person to lose. Therefore, God would providentially ensure that whoever won must have been in the right. As I say to us, with our secularized, realistic view of things, this seems, what were they, utterly naive? That is, in fact, one of the chief things that this play is examining, and in fact, that the whole tetralogy will be examining, but it comes to the fore here in this play. That was the ideology, and it points towards a much larger belief that history is utterly providential. It is not this person's will against this person's will, this person's army, or this person's plotting against the other person's, and a good role of accident thrown into the mix. No, it is all utterly determined there is an orderly pattern of history ordained by a providential God. And the ritualized symbolic quality of this scene dramatizes this. It is, it is as solemn as a Roman Catholic mass. And that solemnity is part of the belief system. We're talking about a trial here, a different kind of trial than we're used to, but still a trial. And we retain, even in the modern legal system, we retain a vestige of this idea that there is something larger than just power politics and the will of this person and the gun of this person against the other. When judges come into a courtroom, either in the United States or in England, they wear robes, and those are the robes of office, and the minute that they don them, they cease to be their ordinary human selves and become the voice and the ear of the law itself, detached and impersonal. The minute we put it that way, suddenly the distance between us and the Middle Ages diminishes if we put it that way, you can also be cynical and say, yeah, right, sure. The judges are really just men and women, and they are still human beings no matter how many robes they put on, and they are going to dictate according to their own prejudices and their own interests, right? That is indeed again, what the play is trying to examine. But we still, today, at least pay lip service to the idea that people may rise beyond a purely personal way of judging and look at it from a larger perspective. If everybody did that, it would be a different world. But the play is going to look at people who do and don't believe in that. 
at any rate, that's what's going on here, and the solemnity of the, the occasion symbolizes the fact that this is a ritual action in a providential world. Mulberry denies the accusation that he is a traitor. He repeatedly, and rather nervously, calls into the question the fact that his accuser is a member of the royal family, and he is quite understandably concerned that he will not have impersonal justice here because somebody from the royal family is accusing him, but he is assured by both Bolingbroke, who sets aside his royal privilege as a member of the royal line, and by Richard himself, that there will be impersonal judgment here, that no, this is not just a family, is not just going to close ranks. But at any rate, Bolingbroke goes on and more ritual throws down his gauge. This was the way of challenge, again, coming out of the medieval world. His gauge meaning his glove. And then the challenge would be taken up by the other side who would also throw down his glove. So Bolingbroke, throwing down his gauge, shouts, pale, trembling coward, there I throw my gauge, declaiming, disclaiming here the kindred of the king. I set aside the fact that I am kindred and lay aside my high blood's royalty. And goes on to accuse. What are we accusing Mowbray of? Well, the list goes on and on, but it finally leads up to the real thing. It begins by, well, you have embezzled the king's money. The king, Mowbray received 8,000 nobles, 8,000 pieces of money for payment of his, your highness's soldiers, which he hath detained for lewd employments. He bought entertainment with it instead of paying the king's army. Then some sort of vague, and all the treasons of these 18 years, fetch from false Mowbray. First he embezzled, second, by the way, everything that's gone wrong with England in the last eight, 18 years, this guy has been behind. Well, okay, finally, the real thing comes out. That he did plot the Duke of Gloucester's death, in other words, Thomas of Woodstock's death. And for that, I challenge him. Mowbray, of course, denies this. And in fact, we have to look at the, carefully at the words with which he denies it, because they are, and in the edition, the Bevington edition that I've always used, you even get a footnote to this effect of Mowbray speaks guardedly. The guardedly is this. Mowbray says, for Gloucester's death, I slew him not, but to my own disgrace neglected my sworn duty in that case. This could mean simply that, oh, 
I neglected my own duty. I didn't guard him. He was in my custody. I was responsible for him. And I neglected to guard him closely enough, and oops, somebody slipped in and killed him. Or it could mean something else. It could mean I was urged to kill him by him, somebody, and I neglected my sworn duty. I stalled and put it off. And probably everybody in the room knows what he's really saying, guardedly. The real culprit he is strongly implying is the king himself, that he was acting on orders. He did kill Thomas of Woodstock. Historically, this is assumed to be true. But the question, both in history and in the play, is was he acting at the secret orders of Richard II? Why would Richard II want one of his own uncles eliminated? Power politics of succession. Anyone who survives is a potential threat and therefore might be eliminated. Is that true or is that not true? And Mowbray has to be very careful lest standing in front of the king himself, he's accusing the king of murder. Nevertheless, the challenge goes on. Richard makes a show of trying to reconcile the two, but when the two men refuse to be reconciled, he ends the scene by setting a, a place and a date for trial by combat. Be ready as your lives shall answer it at Coventry upon St. Lambert's Day. End of scene one. That is the setup. We switch to a completely different type of scene. Suddenly, Shakespeare catching a rhythm of drama here. A private scene instead of that formal public scene. A private scene between John of Gaunt the old venerable man who opened the play, and the Duchess of Gloucester, in other words, the murdered Thomas of Woodstock's widow. And what she has clearly come to beg of John of Gaunt is that he speak in the name of justice. And she is the one who gives the speech that speaks of Edward's seven sons, whereof thyself art one. And she says, they were as seven vials of his sacred blood. The seven sons are seven vials of Edward's blood. And one, she goes on to say, has been broken and spilled. And that was my husband. I ask for justice. I ask that you aid me in seeking justice. The only words, however, that John of Gaunt is able to reply to this poor woman are words of helpless frustration. He says, but since correction lieth in those hands which made the fault that we cannot correct, put we our quarrel 
to the will of heaven. John of God is automatically assuming, there is no doubt in his mind, that Thomas of Woodstock, this woman's husband, was murdered on the command of Richard II. He just out and said so. But he also says, said with the same breath that there's nothing we can do about it for that very reason, not just because the king is powerful, but because of, again, ideology that came out of the Middle Ages, out of the old world, the old providential belief system. As primogeniture did, as trial by combat did, so the belief that later, the phrase only originated at a later period, but the same belief basically that was later called the divine right of kings. And you can't understand Shakespeare's history plays without understanding this concept. The idea was that God created everything and put everything into a proper order. He created the order of nature and ranked everything into a hierarchy that is known as the chain of being with the higher things on top and the lower things down below. But he also, according to this ideology, went further than that. And the social order, not just the natural order, but the social order is also ordained by God and ordained in a hierarchy from top to bottom. And everything on top is better than and has power over whatever is down below it. And he put the king at the very apex on the throne. He is the anointed king, which is a biblical reference to the way that the Israelite kings were anointed in the Old Testament, anointed with oil on their foreheads in a ceremony. Again, the element of symbolic ceremony. And God put the king on the throne. The king didn't just achieve power. It wasn't an accident of birth. It isn't the best guy for the job. It is God's will. God, he, the king is God's anointed. And therefore, if you oppose the king, let alone depose the king, you are going against not just other people, not just against the social system, but against God himself and God will smite you for it, and it may smite a whole country if the king is deposed. Even if it's a bad king, it may be that God has decreed that a bad king shall hold the throne. Who knows why? God has his ways. Maybe he decided the people needed to be punished, so we'll give them a bad king for a while. But at any rate, you may not do, raise a single finger against God's anointed. Gaunt goes on to say in this scene, God's is the quarrel. For God's substitute, his deputy anointed in his sight, hath caused his, Thomas of Woodstock's, death. That's the belief. This belief was sheer ideology, or if you're feeling blunt about it, a sham. The king is God's anointed. Some of it, as I point out in classes, some of this 
only sustained itself down through centuries due to the fact that most people could not read and therefore could not read the Bible itself, but were dependent on more educated people who told them what was in the Bible. Finally, in Shakespeare's time, when the Bible was beginning to be translated into the vernacular languages and people could read what was actually written there, they came to the realization that's not in the Bible. The Bible only refers to God's anointed for the kings of Israel in the Old Testament. It does not go on to say that any monarch of any country down through history is always God's anointed and therefore you have to obey him at all costs no matter what. They made that up and said it was what God said. And that's the reason that a lot of this ideology began to be questioned by Shakespeare's time. Increase of literacy was one very potent reason why the old order was shaken. At any rate, and that is relevant because the theme in the play is indeed the power of words, as we will quickly see. That is the dilemma here, that nevertheless, whether it's really in the Bible or not, this is the belief system, and John of Gaunt is hereby endorsing that. This is his symbolic role in the play to represent the old order, the old ideal beliefs in providence, in God's anointed, in the old way. What the play and the tetralogy will go on to question is whether that's an idealized illusion and whether or not Everybody even really believes it, though of course they're required to give lip service to it. But underneath, are they acting according to cynical beliefs of power politics? The play is set in a previous era, but Shakespeare knew, or at least knew of, the work of Machiavelli, who suggested quite the opposite of the old beliefs. Machiavelli made himself notorious. He was regarded as next door to the devil himself by daring to suggest in The Prince and other works that politics is simply power politics. You have to give lip service to all these ideal things, but the prince must act on ruthless self-interest or he's not going to be prince for very long. That was regarded as anathema, but nevertheless we see people acting on it, even here in Richard II. The question is, what did Shakespeare believe? And this is a bone of contention about the history plays as a whole. How much belief did Shakespeare have in the old providential system and the belief that with the deposing of Richard II, a curse was called upon England, chaos did ensue, for the whole period of time covered by the double tetralogy was that God's curse at the undoing of the rightful king, or is that politics as usual? And that is going to be what gets played out. 
in the next scene, Act 1, Scene 3, we move to the supposed trial by combat between the two men, between Bolingbroke and Mowbray. And again, we get a symbolic ritualized, each denounces the other in long-winded speeches and so forth and so on. And just as the trial is going to begin, Richard throws down his baton, which is the signal like a referee in a game. Stop, stop. Richard says, no, this will not take place. There never is a trial by combat. It's been all for nothing for a whole act of the play. Instead, he banishes both men, Bolingbroke and Mowbray. We will see the outcome of that and what comes to pass from it next time.